Women's Humanity Arts Festival at Artscape. Woman's Zone, in conjunction with Artscape, bring you a series of six special podcasts featuring women with important stories and messages to share. If you'd like to know more, find us on Facebook, Woman's Own CT, or email info at womanszonect.co.za. Saving a Stranger's Life, Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor by Dr. Anne Bickard was published in November 2020, and we interviewed Anne in March 2021. We were in the thick of COVID-19, and Anne's observations in the overworked ER ward were harrowing, honest, and sometimes hilarious. Fast forward to April 2022, and holding my breath, further exploits of an ER doctor lands on our desks and chronicles from August 2020 to January 2022 in the ER ward. It further opens the door on the life in ER with humour and empathy, but perhaps now is the time to reflect as we slowly emerge towards a near normal life. With restrictions lifted, it's been a gruelling two years. I'm Beryl Eichenberger and we're catching up with Anne as one of our guest authors for Women's Month. But I want to start at the end with a quote from the book. Before COVID, the medical profession felt powerful. We had whispered spells and wove a strong magic. We had tinctures and tricks and genuinely well thought out strategies. For the past two years, we've been screaming into the wind, watching helplessly as our patients are decimated, despite our best efforts. I asked Anne, Will life ever be the same again for the medical profession? Um, no, I don't think it ever will be the same. To be honest, I think we've been irretrievably changed by this pandemic as the medical profession. I can't speak for everyone, but speaking for the people that worked with me in the ED, from the receptionists to the porters to the nursing staff, the doctors, the physiotherapists, it's been an indelible experience, I have to say. Maybe we should just rewind a little. Perhaps I, I should ask you how differently you viewed COVID in the second year and what changes you had seen in the profession or what changes you had seen amongst your colleagues. So I think initially we didn't know it was coming and we tried very hard to prepare for what other countries had seen. and then. In the middle of the third wave, we were completely overwhelmed. So there was a a place where we were almost ready to give up, where it was a place where the people working in the ER were saying, we actually can't cope. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough oxygen. It's mayhem. Everyone's shouting at us. There are too many patients. So there was a point, a tipping point, where we hit, if you want to call it skid control, we were lucky. At our hospital, we had the most amazing team. I mean, people who pulled together, were agile, figured stuff out, made new wards, worked incredibly long hours, which I can tell you for sure is going to pay forward. It's going to take its toll on those people because the last two years, we've worked some of them every single day for a year and a half. You don't do that without paying the price, you know. I think that price we're going to pay is still coming. It's still being seen. The post-traumatic stress, people who are leaving the medical profession because they feel they can't cope. It's been a, a very, very telling two years. 
we didn't really sign up for this. You know, we we, we signed up for medicine knowing it was going to be long hours, but we, we didn't know we'd be faced with this kind of, of monster. You speak about conditions and, and the shortage of materials, etc. I mean, there, there's recently been an absolute furor about conditions in public hospitals. But how did you, as a, a, a private hospital, maintain the standards? I mean, you're saying that you were, sh- you were short of materials, you were short of everything, but you delivered. It must have been incredibly difficult because the demands were so high. Yeah, I think it's a, a kind of a policy decision at the front. And it was interesting, I had a, a, a discussion with somebody today and they were talking about a friend of theirs who was a, a doctor, long story short, um, would never write their name down on a paper to take responsibility. They would duck out of the ward, duck out of the recess, duck out of wherever to make sure they were never responsible for anything. And I think that with COVID, we made a policy decision ahead of time that we were not going to turn anyone away. And when one of us flagged, and a lot of us did, somebody else picked up the slack. So one of us would go, I can't cope. The second one would say, we've decided we have to sort this out. And then the third day, the same person who was pushing at the front line, I guess it's a bit like the Springboks playing New Zealand. You're on the front line, you're pushing, and somebody else is pushing, and it's the spirit of the team, and you stick together, and sometimes you get a win and sometimes you don't. But we were really lucky with an amazing team, like just stuck together, kept making plans, we figured out we had no beds. There were no beds in Gauteng at all. And so we thought, well, what can we do now? Can we send the patients elsewhere to another province maybe? How are we going to get them there? What hospital can accept them? The waves kind of like, sort of washed over the provinces separately. You know, when we were good, Kimberley had lots of patients. When we were swamped, Kimberley had beds. Wazulu Natal had beds, but then there were the riots and we couldn't get the chopper in or the you know, it was an everyday a maneuver. It it was but very much person, thinking on your feet, wasn't it? Exactly. And each person I think that got through COVID is enormously grateful to our efforts. And um I think that's all that matters is that we stood our ground. I was interested in the book. I mean, you're a private hospital and medical aid has to cover your costs and if patients didn't have medical aid did you have to turn them away did you have to send them to government hospitals how did you deal with that because it must have been nightmarish and and heartbreaking sure so that is that is a very political question which i'll answer (laughs) um government did make an allegiance with the private sector that if overwhelmed we would help at basically no charge minimal charge and we never had to rely on that so we had quite a few private patients that came through that we had to try and bed, find beds in government it was very very difficult i mean government was overwhelmed with their own patients so yeah you found, you know I work at barra i know the hospital well they look out their window and there are 100 people in a queue all with covid waiting to be seen now you're finding from some private hospital saying, please, can you take the patient? They're like, no, sorry, we've got like 100 people waiting in our queue to be seen. So we can't take your patient because your patient's already in your hospital and our patients are waiting to be seen. But it kind of worked out, and fundamentally because 
I think the doctors are interested in helping the patient and not really interested in the money. And I know oh. that sounds controversial, but I can tell you now, if you ask any doctor to come and see a patient, they will never refuse for financial reasons. So they're not going to say, sorry, the patient's not a medical aid. So then the burden of care falls on the hospital, not on the individual doctor, right. because, you know, or whatever. And the private healthcare sector was amazing during COVID. I mean, they, they made a commitment with government and they stood up to that. They helped, they got beds, they got oxygen, they helped people in the car with portable oxygen, whatever they needed to do. There was never a question, if you don't have money, we're not going to help you, for sure not. Which is, I think, the most wonderful thing, well, it is the most wonderful thing and, and something that we must be eternally grateful for because I think almost the country worked together as a team because we just didn't want to see anybody not taken care of or not dying from this terrifying pandemic. It was just something we'd, we'd never experienced before. I, I think one of the things that has come out of it, uh, particularly is, and you mentioned it earlier, the PTSD. And, you know, not only in the hospital sector, but the public sector as well, you know, just the, the ordinary people who were pushed into isolation. What did you see amongst your own patients? Yeah, I think if anybody asked me what we learned from COVID, yes. I think we learned not to isolate people. So everyone was so terrified of contracting COVID that we snatched people away from their families, literally, and they, they never saw their families again. And that... Yeah. If you'd given the patient and the family an opportunity to give an opinion, they would have said, we'd rather see our grandpa again than just have him sucked up into the system. And we were so busy. I mean, when I tell you we were rushed to our feet, we were seeing 60, 70, 120 patients a day in a hospital that's supposed to cope with maybe 30 admissions. Right. So we were overwhelmed with patients. The physicians were running, coming to casualty, helping us literally getting patients out the car, just getting other doctors in to write the scripts because the scripts are 14, 15 medications. It takes time to write it. You still trying to ventilate another patient. You know, we had amazing input from dermatologists, gastroenterologists, orthopods, just came in and said, we registered doctors, we'll write the scripts. You tell us what to write. We'll just channel the patients through. So the guys on the front line, like myself and the physicians, were doing the immediate ventilation, x-rays, assessment, and we were literally at the height of the third wave. I wouldn't even speak to the physicians about the admissions. I'd literally take pictures of their sticker and just WhatsApp them. And they were just going ping, 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 ping. And the physician would say, please stop. I've got no more beds. And I'm like, sorry, ping, 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 another three, ping, ping, another two. And they were like, we can't cope, you know. And then eventually they'd say, we're coming down there. And they'd come down and they'd see the patients. And the only thing that I think we did wrong was we, we took the patients away from their families. And if the families had the choice, they would have wanted to come into the wars. They didn't care that they got exposed to COVID. They were living with their older people, the younger people before anyway. Sure. So sure. they didn't want to be separated. They didn't want to have to never see their family again maybe here two or three days later because the physicians were so busy and couldn't get to call them that their family member passed away and they never got to see them. That must have been the worst part, is not being able to say goodbye. So that's that's 
one of the major lessons. Yeah, I think to, to have an open ICU policy, it's mm -hmm. tricky. I mean, we've had lots of debates. I was in a course a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about resuscitating patients and the sort of normal, average, used, traditional way, let's call it, of resuscitating somebody is to tell the patient's family to please leave the room. And the new thinking is don't. Let their families come into the room and see what you're doing. There's no right. secrets here. Let them see you doing CPR. Let them see you intubating the patient. Let them see, you know, that you're trying. And then at least they have some closure, you know, rather than they arrive at the casualty with the patient and you snatch them away and you come out half an hour later and say, sorry, they're not. And they're like, what happened in between? Did I leave it too late? Did you even try and resuscitate them? You know, obviously, unless there's something that you think a person would be traumatized by, but I don't think it's a bad thing that people see that we try and save their their family's life. You know, I think we too um, we fold too many things into the mist and make too many mysteries and you know make too many not secrets. It's not a secret. It's um just trying to protect the family, I guess. But in some ways, it's good for them to see what we're doing. Yes, I would agree. And I think that, you know, that uh, mental health is going to be a major problem following the two years that we've been through, both with your yourselves, your colleagues, and with the greater public as well. We're going to be dealing with that fallout, so to speak, for a good while yet. Uh, there is, you know, we've, everybody talks about the new normal, but I don't think there is a normal, do you, And in terms of going forward and I think we've got to look at how we go forward what are your thoughts on what if you know people are throwing away their masks at the moment and and happily almost forgetting that it happened you know there there are a lot of people who've gone back to a so-called normal how do you feel about that well you know I, I've had an interesting chat with an ethicist I worked with who said to me what's with the mask man I was like no I love this mask he was like why are you wearing that mask? Like, he said to me, of all the people in the world, are you really brainwashed by COVID? I was like, no, I'm not brainwashed by COVID, but I am aware of the fact that a lot of people who come into the casualty have a germ, and I prefer to wear a mask. It also disguises my facial expressions, which is fantastic. You know? Yes. So I'm happy with my mask, but um, yeah, the new normal, you know, COVID's been here or you know, the virus, the coronavirus, interestingly, has been here every 10 years for the last 30 years. So 30 years ago, well, actually 20 years ago, we had the major, I think it was um, the Middle East, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Mm -hmm. H2N1, something, yeah. Yeah, so that one, H2N1, it was a influenza virus, but this coronavirus it's called coronavirus because it has like a little crown it's like a little crown on its head which is corona what corona means you get lots of innocuous coronas you get but then 20 years ago there was MERS which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome and that was mostly cared about camels and it was a huge pandemic in the Middle East but it never spread I guess because there was no like international transport or ever and then 10 years ago SARS which was the South Asian yes, I think yeah, respiratory the Asian. and that totally the same pandemic, the same massive respiratory response, the same massive pneumonias, people who died, but also one or two cases in South Africa, we never thought it would come here. It's like 10 years on the dot, COVID-19 arrived. 
but that one got around the world either because it's developed as a virus or because of international transport, I can't say, but that virus caused a massive response and we, we still don't understand what happened. Was it like a kind of allergy to the virus? Was it a massive inflammatory cascade? I mean, there were so many theories about why some people did so badly with it, but they did. I mean, you have 100 people with COVID and 10 people just went like a ship into an iceberg and you yeah. knew what was going to happen, but you couldn't turn it around, you know? Yes, we all lost people that we knew from COVID. I, I think that we, we're all still reeling from that, from the numbers that were lost and the numbers of what possibly were COVID-related illnesses as well. But I, I mean, one of the things that you say in the book is, and and I also want to assure the listeners that this is not a sad book by any stretch of the imagination. There are some very sad moments and some very tragic stories, but you deal with everything with wonderful empathy and wonderful humor. And you see the humor in sometimes the most difficult cases, but in the best possible way. But I mean, there was a lovely, you, you spoke about monitoring the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And there's been such controversy about people who refuse to be vaccinated and the chip that was going into their bodies and this, that and the other. I mean, I, I found it completely extraordinary. We grew up on vaccinations. But do you want to speak to that a little bit? The vaccination is like very controversial. I mean, yes. it's something we have to offer really for viral things. So looking back on the history of how we deal with viruses, as the medical profession, the only thing we have to offer is a vaccination. So it's a clear division. And, you know, with bacterial things, you can offer an antibiotic. With parasitic things, you can give an antiparasitic. And with the virus, you either hope the patient's going to survive the viral infection or you vaccinate them. So coming from that basic training, to me, it was obvious that the only way we could prevent this germ was by vaccination. Having said that, influenza has a 1% mortality, which is quite high, given the fact that 100 people who get influenza A virus will die from it. That's quite a high mortality. Mm-hmm. I think measles, off the top of my head, is like a 4 to 8% mortality, so that's pretty high. And corona is about the same as measles. So the only thing I would think we had to offer was vaccination. But I had some reservations because how did they develop the vaccine so quickly? So I was I had some reservations about how they suddenly came up with a vaccine in two years where the other vaccines, I mean, HIV have been struggling for a vaccine for 20 years. And I read a lot of the information and I came to the conclusion that it was better to be vaccinated. You know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You don't want to get COVID pneumonia. It was everywhere, uh, you know, between a rock and a hard place. I had the vaccine. I felt it was the right advice to give. I think a lot of people thought it wasn't. I think they felt that we would discriminate against them if they hadn't had the vaccine. So when we had the new wave of coronavirus people kind of in January this year, everyone said they'd been vaccinated. And I thought, gee, that's weird. I mean, I know for a fact that only... 50% of the population has been vaccinated. Right. So 
how come every single person I'm seeing in the casualty says they've been vaccinated? I don't obviously ask for their records. I just ask them out of interest. So I think a lot of people said they'd been vaccinated that weren't. But be that as it may, the fourth and fifth wave seems much milder, which is great because that to me means that this is a natural, in inverted commas, virus that comes out and becomes attenuated in the population that we see. Whereas if it was, if it were a virus that was sort of manufactured, they would have thought of the possible variations and mutations and made the thing stronger in the fourth and fifth and sixth wave than it was in the third. So I feel hopeful that that's a good sign. That's good to hear from a doctor. I, d I just want to go back into the book. I mean, you, you record the dreadful crash of the emergency crew, that terrible helicopter crash in January 2021. And that, that must have been devastating for all of you and, and sort of almost given you a, a setback in, in terms of your own morale. Totally. So, you know, the bravery of those people who go, so it's called HEMI, Helicopter Emergency Medical Intervention, I think. Uh -huh. it's, so it's a, a very particular group of people who like to fly. I worked for them for a while. I absolutely hated it. Hated going on the helicopter. I got so airsick. I hated flying. I just, it wasn't for me. But the people who did it were very hands-on, present, prepared to put themselves up in the middle of the night to fly in a helicopter to some unknown place, settle on the N14 outside of Dipslet on the middle of a highway with cars and power lines and whatever to airlift people to ever. I mean, it's seriously on the edge stuff, you know. So they, they were people chose a very particular lifestyle. But the thing that was difficult about that group, and that helicopter actually didn't fly from our hospital, but I knew the people who flew from it, was that the whole group was mixed up. So they were supposed to have a particular group of people who were supposed to go, but for various reasons, the crew was changed at the last minute. And um, that for me felt like the universe just slapped you. Those Great. people put their names up, they, they were prepared to go at the last minute. They were prepared to change up. They were prepared to be the people to go and fetch a person, put them on ECMO, which is a cardiovascular bypass, fly them, be in a close space with those people. And that just, their life just went up in a ball of flame, you know. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely You know, just, and, and such, um, they didn't know they were going to crash, obviously, but they still took the risk of going on a helicopter, which can crash, and going to get a patient with COVID to bring them back for ECMO. They were trying. You know, they were all out. They were full throttle open, let's go. And, and one, you know, one can only salute that bravery. Yeah, you know, and it, it kind of goes past and you forget about it. Sure. We had a sort of memorial thing for the, for the crew. And you think, gosh, you know, we just move on. It's like we a have ripple to. in the water. Yes. So that's how did you cope? I mean, you talk about your Snoopies, your wonderful rescue greyhounds, and Pookie. I, I really fell in love with Pookie, I have to say. But was that what kept you sane? Because you also had your own share of ill health 
as well and you battled through and and I really felt for you when I was reading those pages yeah, I was a bit unlucky here huh? when I got COVID. It was just a simple goodbye. Huh? You looked a bit like you might have COVID. I was like, no, I don't have COVID. And the unit manager said, hmm, I think you need a test. I was like, no, no, I don't need a test. Everyone has COVID, so I'm not testing. Sticks the swab up my nose, puts on thing, looks at me in the eye and says, sorry. <laughs> I was like, what? She just like ditched me, and I was like, "Well, not ditched me. I'm not in a nasty way." She was like, "Sorry, you've got COVID. You must go home." And it was hectic. I mean, I knew there was something wrong with me because I had absolutely no sense of smell, and it was like a neurological thing. It was like there's something wrong with the front of my brain. It just doesn't work. Like it's not like when you have a cold and your nose is blocked and you can't smell, or you know, you know, it's like a temporary thing that'll pass over. It's like a proper block. Right. And then the weird thing after that was I had like short-term memory loss. It was the strangest thing. And I could not remember a thing. So I got over COVID, went back to work. And I'd start working in the morning and I'd think, okay, great. Like here I am. And I'd start working. And then I'd get like three hours into the shift and I'd look at my phone and I'd go, gee, I found that person. I wonder why I found them. And I could not remember. It was like you reach into an empty space and there's nothing there. It's right. just like a vacant, like a vacant. You know, if you put your coffee cup down and you work on your laptop and you know it's there and you're sort of looking, reading an email and you put your hand out and you pick up your cup kind of subliminally, except when you're looking for the memory, there's nothing. It's like you put your hand into the vacant space and you think, I'm sure there was a coffee cup here. Then you look around and you go, oh my goodness, there's nothing there. Oh. It is the creepiest feeling. It is horrible. I mean, I could see the younger doctors I worked with are like, um, are you all there? And it went away. I mean, it took a while to settle, but it was pretty hectic. I can tell you it was definitely like a neurological thing. And now fully recovered and probably ready to yeah. write again. Yeah, yeah. I'm still, you know, I'm still working, so I'm still writing. <laughs> What's There's the next still book people going to be? Yeah, it's same old, same old, just number three. Three is a good number, huh? This is true. And, and uh, I mean, there were some very funny stories in the book. I, I have to say that I just love the man whose nipple had moved, what it caused him. We're not going to give any spoilers, but, I mean, it's that was hilarious. And then the old man who fancied you and was flirting outrageously with you, which was quite delicious. What was your favourite story? Um, so, you know, it's a little bit confusing for me because the first and second book kind of merge into each other. So they weren't really written as things happened. They were written about the last 25 years in ED, about stuff that stood out for me. And I've kind of mixed it up and I've changed people's genders and I've changed, you know, kind of what happened because obviously I don't want anyone to be identified. You know, no, I don't sure. want any patient to be exposed um, I don't want any doctor, although I have to say I, I was moaning about somebody the other day and they said, gosh, it's very unlike you to speak badly about someone. And I said, you know, it is. Actually. I, I would very, very seldom see, see the negative. I'd very seldom criticize a colleague. So all of the doctors that appear in the book are fairly positively portrayed, I'd say. Yes, they are. But very much little, so. there is a little bit of a debate, you know, about who exactly is the favourite physician. And he knows who he is. And the favourite radiologist also knows who she is. 
but the rest of the crew doesn't quite know. The blue-eyed surgeon, everyone knows, because I was like, well, how many people at this hospital have blue eyes? And they were like, um, of the surgeons. I was like, yeah. And they were like, we don't know. I was like, well, just have to look at the eyes and you'll know who the blue-eyed surgeon is. Well, I think you portray everybody in a in a very positive way. And I mean, that is is, is what the book did for, I think, any reader, and certainly did for me, is that it is uplifting. I have cats, so I really did love the story of the woman who phoned in about her cat. Oh, shame! I felt bad for her. And I, ju- I just thought that it was it was so sort of normal. Well, I don't know what to do about my cat, and, and I'm not quite sure what, what it is. I'll phone the doctor, you know, instead yes. of the vet. But you know, perhaps that was just the way that that's just the way that people are. But finally. I think because we are, as always, running out of time, and this has been a wonderful conversation. Looking back, are we prepared for the future? And would you do things differently? Um, I think we are prepared for the future. Hopefully, touch wood, crossing fingers and toes, we through this particular tsunami. I'm hoping that we're going to move on to... Back to where we were, where we, like basically where we were, whatever we're going to call that normal or whatever we want to say it is. I mean, hopefully the wave is over. Hopefully the book has helped people to see that the doctors who work in the ED are also humans and also take things seriously and worry about things and maybe don't sleep at night because they fret about something that they must and not see the medical profession as a all-powerful, all-knowing deity that is there to punish them for something, because what we are all doing, you know, is basically trying our best. And I think that what's come out in COVID is that we could only do the best we could. And yes, we lost our spells and our our potency and whatever was there before, but we stood our ground and we tried our best. And hopefully people can see that, can see that we're actually there to try and help people and that very, very few, I mean, I teach at Barra and, you know, I can tell you one thing for sure, very, very few doctors, almost none that I've ever met, would ever deliberately neglect or mismanage a patient. 99.9% we're trying to do our best. And I think that comes across in the book very much so that you leave no stone unturned. And I think that this is an absolute salute to the medical staff, to the hospitals, to all the healthcare workers, to absolutely everybody who was involved in COVID and continues to care for our health in in whatever way it happens to be. But you, you have really given the medical profession an accolade and rightly so. So, Anne, I'm going to have to say goodbye to you and say thank you so very much for sparing this time. And we'll look forward to the next book. Excellent. Piggy says hi. <laughs> Is his leg fully recovered now? Oh, yes. He's busy thank- eating up a storm as we speak. Thank you, Anne. Okay, thanks for the interview. Every day.